I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, are all emotions universal? Does anger, shame, or even love mean or feel the same way across cultures? Emotions always are rooted in the circumstances in which you live. So we have emotions about the things that we find important. We're angry because somebody blocks an important goal. We are sad because we lose something. Emotions are not just feelings inside us, but emotions are mostly things you do between people. And later, will technology be able to read our most private thoughts? The computer could perceive that your face is changing, that your voice is changing, that your gestures are changing, and do a better job of learning what you like and dislike, adapting to your preferences. And that might make you uh, have a much more productive and enjoyable interaction with it. Emotions, how they're created and valued by culture and being decoded by machines. That's coming up on Life Examined. Happy, sad, angry, or frustrated, how are you feeling today? It's natural to assume that most human emotions are universal. We all love and hate, right? Turns out, emotions don't happen in a void. How we feel and what we feel is shaped and influenced by our surroundings, personal interactions, and largely by our culture. Being angry at your toddler or boss is very different from the anger you may feel towards your partner. Parental love or motherly love is certainly very different today than it was a hundred or so years ago. In her latest book called Between Us, How Culture Creates Emotions, author and cultural psychologist Batia Gomez de Mesquita analyzes academic studies and stories from around the world to show that how we experience emotions depends on our experiences and also depends on what is valued in our culture or how we relate to other people. Batia Gomez de Mesquita is a professor of psychology and director at the Center for Social and Cultural Psychology at the University of Leuven in Belgium, and she joins me now. Batia, welcome. Thank you for having me here. Batia, can you tell me a little bit about how your work as a psychologist was impacted by by a really interesting family history in the place that you come from, and I should say the many places. So tell us a little bit about you and help us get to know you a bit before we jump in further. Yeah, I I was raised and uh, born and raised in the Netherlands, um, and you know you only you only guess how you got interested in the topic that you uh, that I'm studying. But one of the reasons may be that I was from a Jewish family, um, European Jewish family had a history of you know a Second World War history, and I would say. Um, my parents had a lot of emotions that I may not have always understood. Um, they were, you know, we were a happy middle-class family and there was anxiety and depression. Um, now, lots of middle-class families have those, but there were burst outs that I really couldn't uh, understand from the, from the current situation. So I think what I describe in my book is that I was always um, a psychologically minded girl or kid. And that that may have something to do with the fact that I was always looking at parents who really had a history that I had no direct access to, who had experiences that I had no direct access to. Um, So that's the story um, in in my book that I start with. Um, I also say then, that I always thought that those emotions that I couldn't understand had something to do with how they were deep inside, something about the deep psychology that they that they had. And you know, I was as a child, I wanted my childhood aspiration was to become a psychiatrist or a, a psych, psychologist who uh, looked for these deep emotions and then could fix them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what was wrong anyway. My parents were, by the way, also very loving, very intelligent, articulate, socially involved people. So there was certainly not only trauma in our family, but yeah. there was also trauma to be understood. And if I have this right, I mean, you have members of your family that were survivors of the Holocaust. So, I mean, this is a very deeply traumatic story at the same time. Yeah, they all, they all were. My, my mom, uh, actually, my, my dad was, uh, I'll make it more interesting. My dad was a classmate of Anne Frank and mm. is, uh, is mentioned in her diary. My mom, um, there was a book written about her life not so long ago. It's called The Cut Out Girl. 
And so they have, you know, they were Jewish kids surviving the war um, and they did so in different ways, but they were, they didn't go to concentration camps, but my mom came out as an orphan. Um, so her parents, her parents did and, and died. And there was a, a large extended family that was, yeah, that didn't survive the war in, in all kinds of different ways. But so it was a ha- Holocaust um, past. Uh, and I think, you know, I use it as an introduction to say it was a context that I didn't have direct access to, that I, you know, all these events, all these aspects of the world that I didn't experience, but that my parents' emotions were rooted in. Mm. And so um, I thought that it was something special to my parents deep inside them. But when I look at that, at, you know, when I look with uh, the distance of an adult, I think, no, even those emotions were shaped by the circumstances in which they grew up and, and survived the war and, and the post-war circumstances also, of course. Well, this, I think, would very much set the stage for a lot of your research, and in particular, this latest book. And talk to me a bit about how you understand the relationship between emotions and culture. Yeah, so what I think is that, or what, I, what, what the research shows, is that emotions always are rooted in the circumstances in which you live. So we have emotions about the things that we find important. We're we're angry because somebody uh, blocks an important uh, goal. We are sad because we lose um, something. We're sad because we lose a prospect sometimes, an an identity that we wanted to, to have. We are also, we're also, emotions are not, are not just feelings inside us. And I would say not in the first place feelings inside us, but emotions are mostly things you do between people. Hmm. So when I'm angry, I'm telling you, I'm telling you a number of things, but I'm basically telling you that I'm not accepting your behavior and that I think it's unfair or unjust and that I feel the power to, to, change that emotion or to demand that you that you change that emotion. So what I say in the book is emotions emerge from the circumstances in which we live and they also contribute to the relationships that we have. We choose emotions that serve our the goals that we have for our relationships. So in our world, um, in in our and when I say our, I mean maybe Western, contemporary. It's important to be independent, to feel good about yourself, to be in control of your world. Um, And in that world, certain forms of of anger and and happiness or pride uh, have an important role. Now, that's not the case um, in a lot of other cultures. In a lot of other cultures, Pride and happiness are emotions that are not favorably uh, looked upon because they, be, exactly for those reasons, because they draw the boundaries between you and others, they make you feel better or in control of your world. And if you're if you live in a in a society where relational harmony, for example, is the most important um, goal, then anger and pride don't serve you. I would say even in the culture I grew up with. Um, in the Netherlands, pride existed, but it doesn't have as, or feeling good about yourself, doesn't have the same role that it has in, you know, much of the United States, or at least the United States that I've lived in, where it's really important to feel good about yourself, to make each other feel good about each other, uh, to compliment people, to praise people, to give awards. Um, all of that are is a little less developed in um, in West in the part of Western Europe that I grew up with. So my my point in the book is uh, we all have emotions. We all have emotions about important events in our relationships with others, with the world. We you know we are shaped by the experiences that we have. And we experience our emotions different depending on what kind of experiences we have, but also depending on 
what is valued in our culture, what kind of relationships are good, what kind of a person you want to be, how you are relating to other people. This argument to me is interesting because I, I think it breaks down maybe a simplistic notion that humans all have kind of access to the same array of emotions and that we all feel things the same way or similarly, you know, that, that we're somehow bonded by the emotional tapestry that's available to us. But what I'm hearing is that that's not true. I mean, certainly we can feel similar things, but um, there's just, there's a different uh, set of priorities placed on different emotions, depending on the culture you live in. Absolutely. And I think that an emotion is also different. So I, we have first my, my general point of the book, my general take home message is that it's not our emotions that are universal. I mean, we feel good and bad about things, but our, how those emotions evolve, what they exactly mean, what is at stake with those emotions is very different um, across cultures. And so I actually think that, you know, I know that often the idea that emotions are universal is a very comforting idea. It's the idea that, you know, we share humanity through our emotions and that all the rest is, is less important. What I say in the book is we share with others that we care about things, that we are motivated, you know, to, to come in action about certain things that are important uh, to us what those things are and how we come in action, what the emotions are exactly, is very different across cultures, but also across different instances. Mm -hmm. And I think it just suffices to think that, you know, when I'm angry at my toddler, it's not the same feeling as when I'm angry at my husband or when I'm angry at my boss or when I'm angry at, you know, the state of the world, the fact that, um, abortion has just been taken away from us. So I think those are very different, different angers, even within us. And what is good to realize is by labeling them all as anger, we, of course, we, we, uh, we draw attention to something that they have in common. So I would say in our culture, that is, it's unacceptable and I'm going to demand different behavior. That's the, that's the essence. Of, there is no essence of anger. But that's what most of those uh, episodes have in common. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that they're the same. What I think that the evidence is for, for, for um, emotions in different cultures is that they're comparable categories of episodes. So, you know, there is something that you could call anger in a lot of different cultures. Um, by the way, the word anger doesn't exist as it does in our culture, in all the different languages, but that's another point of speaking. But you can certainly see why anger is translated in, in a different word in a different language. But mm -hmm. that doesn't mean it's the same, it's the same collection of episodes. Yeah. And so what I think is good to think about emotions is these are important events in our lives to which we feel compelled to respond. And, and, there, and how we do that is also really uh, different depending on how people do relationships in the culture. So if you're, if you're focused on harmony with others, it's very different than if you're focused on, um, you know, on keeping face or keeping honor or, or having feeling good about yourself. These are right. very different goals in relationships and emotions, um, emotions differ accordingly. Yeah, if we think about that that example of somebody seeking their own personal happiness, which I think is is very American from what I know, and in particular, you know, in Southern California, there's just massive industries built around making one feel better, just personally, taking care of oneself as the top priority. Could you maybe pick a culture that is the complete opposite of that? where it's really more about social family or cultural harmony than it is that individualistic sense we see in the US? Yeah, I think there, there are many cultures that are that way. Um, I, I'm thinking in the book, I talk about, um, uh, I, I raised my children, I mean, partly in the US and partly in Belgium now, but we, 
constantly try to make them feel good. The school, the school tried to make them feel good. They, they had awards. And I'm telling in the, in the book, I'm telling a story about my son, my 10-month-old son. He's, uh, he's 25 now, so it's been a while. But, um, but my 10-month-old uh, son who could recognize when a book was turned right side up. And so we would, you know, his dad and I would reach him the book uh, turned downside and he would turn it around uh, to be the right side. And every time he did that, um, we said, oh, that's great. And when we had visitors, we said, that's great. So I'm saying in the book, we're, we're basically, we were creating instances of happiness or pride for him uh, and making him feel like a person who could do something that was important. Now, if you look at other cultures, um, different emotions are foregrounded. So um, I compared with um, with Taiwanese mothers who were who were recorded to constantly draw the attention of their children to 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 shameful events. So what the child did wrong, and from an American perspective, that may sound cruel, but it actually isn't because what these mothers try to do is to try to tell their kids to teach their kids what is the the right way of being a person, which is a a person who knows their place, who doesn't embarrass their parents, who um, who behaves according to their uh, mother's role in the hierarchy, uh, and so they're constantly shaming. Now, what what the what the difference is between our shame and their shame is that when those kids look down and are embarrassed, the mom is actually very pleased with them. So it's a it's a condition for the mom to to include the kid again and to be, um, to, you know, to think that the kid is doing a good job. So the, the focus there is not on feeling good about yourself or being an individual. The focus is on fitting into um, to a social hierarchy or a social fabric. Um, I will also say that, you know, the focus is not so much on feeling good as an individual, but feeling good as a family. And your parents can only feel good to the extent that you are a well-behaved kid. So I think that plays a role in that shame. So your shame actually reflects on the parents and tells the parents that um, that they did a good job raising you as a shameful kid. And mm. when um, when the researchers talked to the Chinese moms, not only didn't they have a word for self-esteem, um, but they um, also thought that a shameful kid was a lot better than a shameless kit. A shameless kit was actually what they feared. So I think the focus can be very different on emotional lives. And, and not only for, for kids, it's easy to illustrate with child-rearing stories. Um, but I think that remains to be true for us as adults. It's so interesting because, you know, as I hear this as an American, I, I, I just want to make immediate judgments about how could you be happy living in that type of a system or thinking in that kind of a way. But how do I know what it's really like to be in that family or to have a completely different set of values or to understand the world more as a family is almost like this intertwined organism and right. that the, the, all the pieces rely on each other. It's just, these are such ideas of foreignness depending yeah. on where you come from, right? Yeah, and this may be a good uh, time to say that we find that em emotions, certain emotions do very different things in different cultures. So shame is actually related to depression in um, certainly in U.S. context. It's not at all in, um, in East Asian context. Um, we know from other research that excited happiness is, uh, is related to, uh, to physical and mental well-being. Um, but that's not the case for a lot of East Asian cu cultures, uh, where actually it's much better to be calm and where excited happiness uh, predicts nothing. So we have to be very careful um, projecting our insights from our culture to other cultures, because even in the in the physical health um, uh, research, we now find that it's very it's. What that, what that emotion means in your culture is much more important than the emotion itself. So we, we can't just say, 
you know, anger is bad or good or shame is bad or good. They're good or bad to the extent that they're valued and do their job in, in your culture. So that's a, that's a really important insight. And I think not an insight that you would get if you just started from the idea that we have these universal emotions that are inside your head. It's really about what emotions do between people that mm. makes or whether they're good or bad socially and psychologically and physically. Mm -hmm. What about something like love? You know, the attraction between two people in the West, this is what all of our songs are based off of in literature and the explosive emotionality that comes around that. I, I take it that it may not be similar, maybe in East Asia or other parts of the world. It could be very different too. Is that right? I think we, we all have connectedness emotions. But what, what, but what they look like and what, what they do is very different in different cultures and, and how they're valued too. And I think love in our culture is a very central, essentially good uh, emotion that, that uh, is the building stone for important relationship, but also, you know, mother love or, or, uh, or parental love is very central in our thinking about child rearing. That wasn't the case even in the in the 19th century in the mm. U.S. There was there is um, their mother love only was invented at some point in the 19th century um, when mother stayed home and when it became a cornerstone of child rearing. Before that, children needed to fear their parents and they needed mm. to be rule obedient. So the idea that that love should be um, the one emotion that is that is um, that makes the relationship between parents and children is very recent. Similarly, love may exist and and probably does exist if you talk about passion or or sexual love right. uh, uh, across around the world. But whether that love should have any role in deciding whom you marry uh, is a very different thing. And in many cultures. Love is also associated with something like sadness hmm. because love, um, because when you love somebody, there can be the sadness of separation, but there can also be the sadness for what they're suffering. So real love brings a whole load of concerns with it that some cultures emphasize. And then maybe the last um, answer to your question is that I think love is particularly important in cultures. This is my own theory, and I don't really have a lot of evidence for it. But, but when I look at the, at the patterns across the world, I think love is particularly important in cultures where your relationships um, are built from the ground up. So, when, so in, in our culture, we're, we're basically on our own until we find people to socialize with. I'm mm. I'm uh, I'm exaggerating this a little bit, and I think love is an important guide for for finding people. Um, in some other cultures, people are so close together that love is just not so central. What is more important is that you make sure that people don't come too close to you, and that you don't have too many obligations. So, um, my colleague um, Glenn Adam did research in um, in Ghana. And found that people were not as obsessed with love, but instead they were they were really talking a lot about enemyship, ship, hmm. people taking advantage of you. Um, and and his explanation, and I would concur with that, is that when relationships are given, but also come with a lot of um, not just emotional support but material support, you have to make sure you don't have too many of those relationships, and so you have to be really careful that people are not taking advantage of you. So there's yeah. this constant being on the alert. So no, love doesn't have, it's probably not, doesn't look the same, doesn't have, play the same role and doesn't get the same importance in different cultures. I've been joined by Batia Gomez de Mesquita, author of the new book, Between Us, How Culture Creates Emotions. Thank you for this, this really interesting conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jonathan. It was lovely to be here. When we come back, can computers figure out our moods? And can they help with the mental health crisis made worse by COVID? We'll hear from a leading artificial intelligence researcher at MIT's Media Lab. And a quick note about last week's show on shifting the paradigm when it comes to treating mental illness with Daniel Bergner. Many of you shared your own insights and experiences, like Sia Mozayani, 
Anne Espinosa Drown, Shauna Williams, Anna Wolf, Charlie, Silvio Nardoni, and Kathleen Van Heift. We really appreciate you contributing to our community. You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Batia Gomez de Mesquita, director at the Center for Social and Cultural Psychology at the University of Leuven in Belgium and author of Between Us, How Culture Creates Emotions. So what about technology? Has the revolution in wearable technology also led to the ability of computers to decode how we're feeling? If anger, sadness, or stress are easily recognizable, can facial recognition software spot our emotions, perhaps even before we're aware of them ourselves? And could that help our relationships and our mental health? Joining me now is Rosalind Picard, founder and director of the Effective Computing Research Group at the MIT Media Lab and a faculty member of the MIT Center for Neurobiological Engineering. Rosalind Picard, welcome to Life Examined. Oh, it's my pleasure. We're thinking about what what goes into human emotions, how we understand them, how we read them. And I think if we kind of just pull back before jumping into technology, how do you understand this kind of complicated aspect of being human? Um, what would you say? Mm. Well, to start with, there is no widely agreed upon definition of emotion. And yet most people, not all, uh, think they know what they are. They certainly uh, often describe themselves as having feelings. And that subjective component is one of the key aspects of emotion that we are nowhere near close to building into machines. Mm, Right. And the language can be so vague with the way we use emotion too, right? I mean, just happy or sad can mean so many things depending on who you are or the culture you live in, right? That's exactly right. And sometimes it refers to like a, a state of your cognitive acceptance of a situation. It's not even related to how you feel right now. Well, what drew you into this? Um, I, I understand that you're you're an engineer by training, but but you're working, I think, with some really big questions having to do with human psychology and other fields. Yeah, my initial draw into it actually was more of like being pulled because as a woman trying to be taken seriously in science, uh, the thought of working on emotion was actually something I dreaded. I did not want to be involved with emotion. I thought it would kill my career. Uh, but I learned as st- while I was studying the brain and how it worked that what we call emotion was playing a critical role in what was making us rational, what was making us intelligent, what was shaping our perception and our decision making and just about everything we were trying to solve in AI and not yet solving. Interesting. I mean, I, I think we almost imagine emotion and rationality or cognitive behavior to be kind of different things, but maybe maybe they're not, I suppose. Well, there certainly are times when people uh, are emotionally dysregulated. They fly off the handle, you know, instead of counting to 10 and thinking about something and getting away from their computer before sending that angry reply, uh, you know, they do act emotional. And that's what the popular concept of being emotional is. And that was my concept until I started learning about the ways that we're always having emotion and that it's biasing good decisions as well as bad ones. And if we understand its full extent, not just these extreme outliers, then we'll start to see that it's integral to healthy, rational functioning. Mm, Can you say more about that? Because you're right, when we say someone's emotional, we think they're kind of off kilter in a way. It's it's not actually used in a very positive way. So what do you mean more about the, the subtle aspects of the emotional content of our lives? Yeah, it's it's hard to see sometimes, but we now think that when we Uh, just about every experience gets a kind of an affective tag, like was that a good thing or a bad thing? Instead of in the future having to logically consider every detail, every nuance of a situation and decide whether or not you're going to take the left fork or the right fork in the road each time you face a decision, we 
perhaps make our decisions based on these kind of affective tags or what Antonio Damaso called somatic markers. These are subtle emotional feelings that act as sort of shorthands for making quicker decisions for what might be a good decision. And we tend not to pay much attention to those, but they are a part of just about every decision that we make when you break it down into uh, why you did certain things. Usually the pieces are not 100% backed by rational, logical steps. So begin to tie in a little bit of the work in AI here and how what you were seeing kind of neuroscientifically were leading you to these kind of bigger questions of how we can integrate uh, computers or sophisticated technologies. Yeah, as somebody who used to build the computer inside and out, all the details of the processor that most people don't think about, I was thinking, how do you build a smarter computer that is better at handling complex, unpredictable inputs and flexibly making decisions to do the right thing? And then secondarily, although it's a little embarrassing now because I I think it probably should have been my primary thing at the time, I was thinking about how to make computers better for people to interact with. Well, it turns out that people naturally emote to their machines, whether it's a uh, social robot with a face or a software agent on the computer uh, with a, a voice and some kind of animated body, or just a computer without any face or voice. People still uh, default to treating it with their natural and social uh, behaviors. And those behaviors, for most people, include uh, scowling and uh, smiling and nodding and cursing and right. all of those different expressions that people use with each other, even though the computer had no way to interpret or process those. So I realized as a person who had actually shifted at this point from just building uh, smart computer architectures to trying to build ones that perceived information in their environment, that the computer could perceive that your face is changing, that your voice is changing, that your gestures are changing. And that, in fact, if it did that, it could uh, do a better job of learning what you like and dislike and of adapting to your preferences. And that might make you uh, have a much more productive and enjoyable interaction with it. So it's not just about making it easier to use, although you know that's certainly a, a worthy goal too. Uh, it's about making it natural for people to interact with. Yeah. So how is it that this technology can actually understand our emotional states? Is it primarily through facial recognition? Is it through tone of voice? Talk to me about that that aspect of the science. Yeah, and let me be careful about the word understand. When, mm. when engineers building these systems talk to each other, we talk about emotion recognition and understanding and learning in a way that is uh, very carefully defined to us. We understand what we mean by that. When we talk to the general public and we use those words, what the general public hears with those words, I think, is what people think of when they understand and learn and uh, read emotion. And what we do is not exactly the same as what computers do. And so it unfortunately leads to the effect that we, a lot of people who don't know how computers work, think they can do much more than they can do. So when I say or when you ask me, how does the computer understand it? I want to start by saying the computer does not understand it in anything like the way that people understand anything. Right? Mm-hmm. Computer has no understanding, per se. Computer simply takes inputs that we've taught it to process, and it produces outputs, uh, given certain patterns of those inputs, that we've taught it to choose from. Uh, it doesn't actually have any understanding of sadness, happiness, confusion, frustration, those kinds of things. It simply has learned that this label of frustration is most likely to be what a person would say if they saw a certain pattern of inputs. And it could be wrong. It could be... So let me give an example. Uh, if you furrow your brow uh, in front of a camera attached to a computer vision system, attached to an affect recognition system, it doesn't know what you're feeling. It simply recognizes those are your brows. They've moved in this way. And when brows move in that way, they are often associated with, uh, you know, furrowing, which could happen with squinting, could happen with concentrating, could happen with migraine, could happen with being frustrated, could happen with being confused. Uh, And so we could give the computer the space of possibilities. 
in order for it to quote unquote understand your emotion, which again, it doesn't really understand, but in order for it to choose the label frustration or confusion, it needs to know a little bit more about your context, what you're doing. Like if you're a student and you're being presented with some complicated mathematical formulas and the lighting hasn't changed, then probably you're not just squinting because of bright light in your eyes. Um, and if you don't have migraines or, or you weren't furrowing a little while ago, but you only start furrowing when this confusing looking equation that causes a lot of people to furrow pops up, then quite likely you're concentrating or, and if it persists, then maybe that's a kind of confusion, especially if the furrowing persists and you start shaking your head and scowling, mm. right? Then you might be confused and getting a little frustrated. Mm. And I know that a lot of people are going to be listening about this and, and thinking about uh, privacy concerns. I mean, when you think about a computer constantly reading our the emotions on our face, the way we're speaking, a wearable tracking, all these different health aspects of us, and we think about where all this stuff is going, I, I, I just want to address that because it, it, it feels a little scary to some people um, how our lives will continue to be tracked so closely. So how, I'm sure you get this a lot, but how do you respond to that? I'm really glad you brought up the question of privacy. That has been something I've brought up from day one in this work. In fact, in my book, Affective Computing, I devoted a whole chapter to potential concerns of technology that could start to process our data related to emotion. And uh, help us think through some ways we may or may not want that shared, uh, some potential unintended consequences that we definitely want to prevent from happening. And I, I also think that we need to engage the greater public in these conversations and in getting informed about the good uses of this technology and the uses we don't want to see happen so that when we craft regulations, we do so uh, in a way that doesn't stifle the good uses, in particular good uses that can support people who are differently abled uh, or who have different modes of communication and who might need or want to use these technologies in the workplace or in the school in ways that uh, level the playing field for them or even give them some superpowers. Uh, so thank you for bringing that up. I absolutely am on the side of people uh, having an opt-in say in the communication of this information. And this is something uh, most of the consumer devices out there right now don't really communicate clearly your um, fully informed, uh, don't, I'll, I'll say most of the um, consumer devices and apps out there right now do not really obtain truly informed consent like I think they should. Mm. I think instead they present people with a long list of something they scroll through, they click accept. They don't really know uh, the kinds of things that experts like us know. For example, in the early days of Fitbit, when it was uh, advertised as measuring your steps um, and just computing your motion, people thought, oh, you know, how identifying is that? That's not identifying. You know, you can't tell that it's me. You just tell that it's somebody who was moving or not moving certain times of day. Well, it turns out that you can identify people from that with some other information. And in fact, when you hold still and the movement sensors are on, on your consumer watch or in most smartphones today, just your phone in your pocket while you're sitting here listening, the accelerometers in there pick up not only things like steps and walking, they also pick up your heart rate. They also pick up your respiration. And when processed in a certain way, we can pull out not only your how your breathing rate is changing and your heart rate is changing, um, but we can also pull out that you have a, I don't know how unique because we haven't done it for huge numbers of people, but in small groups of people, we can actually identify whose is whose. Mm. We can take your accelerometer waveforms and figure out who they belong to. You've talked about some aspects in which this new technology can be extremely beneficial. And I wonder if you could go a little bit further about that. What else are you excited about when you think about how these different technologies can help people or, or kind of just help our culture at large? One of the areas that is active research right now, I don't think it's ready to be a product, is using technology to help people understand subtle changes that they're uh, making in their life that could have long-term consequences on their health. Uh, to be more specific, we've been looking at mental health. We've been looking at depression 
And we were doing this even before the pandemic. And now, of course, the problem has just been amplified enormously by the pandemic. I believe the CDC was reporting more than 59% or 59% of girls in high school, high school aged, were uh, reporting chronic sadness and hopelessness, which is absolutely heartbreaking. It used to be about a quarter of the youth were depressed, and now it's the majority of the youth are showing uh, significant symptoms related to depression. We are interested in enabling people to see what it is they're doing each day that is contributing in an evidence-based way to you feeling better or worse. And again, if most people don't have really good readouts of how their subtle feelings are changing, they may notice extreme swings, right? Or if you see somebody over months, you may notice, wow, they look really bedraggled or they look like they're doing so much better now, right? Uh, but the day-to-day -day changes can be really hard for a person to notice, especially if they're working really hard and they're pushing themselves and they think, oh, maybe I'm just tired, I've been working hard. They don't see that, in fact, they're on this long, slow decline from being healthy to becoming depressed. Mm. So technology can help us. Uh, yeah, so when, when you can't see these subtle day-to-day -day changes, uh, we're finding that a lot of them can be measured by technology and then can be converted into uh, numbers that show you how your Hamilton depression rating scale score, an official score that a psychiatrist would, would give you, uh, how that is changing. I, I'm just thinking when you mentioned teenage populations, how can we not think of the amount of time on social media or or you know the studies that came out from the Wall Street Journal on Instagram and body image in young women and and I mean I could just you know maybe any of us could speak personally you find yourself almost unconsciously opening these apps like Instagram and spending 45 minutes on them most likely feeling worse by the time you're off it and finally something clicks in and being like I got to get off this thing what am I doing but there's no actual data that comes back at you saying, I think this might be impacting your mental health over a long stretch of time. So to me, that kind of stuff seems really valuable in a way that we don't have those tools right now. Yes. Uh, in fact, UPenn had done a wonderful study of college students that actually was set up properly to claim causality about that. When they limited, when people were randomized to, you know, use your social media as usual versus limited to 10 minutes a day, the 10 minutes a day group, their mental health improved significantly more than those who uh, kept using it as usual and just monitoring it, right? Monitoring it alone, you do better, um, but monitoring it and limiting it, you do better still. And people, you're, you're quite right. These media are designed to get you to keep clicking, <laughs> to keep scrolling, to doom scroll or whatever, whatever keeps your eyes on, whatever keeps you clicking, right? Because they have a revenue model that's attached to you being attached to it. And the more we enable people to be aware of the effects of their choices on their mental health and their physical health, the more I think you can use technology in service of a goal that helps you flourish. And so would the hope be to say, you know, give people an idea of how they're responding to something on an emotional level. And then, and then what would it be to maybe get someone help or say, limit these behaviors or send you to a doctor? What, 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 what would your thinking be with that? Yeah. The idea in a lot of our work is, well, it starts with the notion that the doctors are already overloaded, mm. that there aren't enough uh, mental health services for the people who need them. So we are going upstream a little bit more before the problems arise you know, certainly if somebody is feeling persistent hopelessness and sadness and anxiety, they should go get help. If that's you listening right now, go get help. Don't try to go it alone. Uh, if you, however, are not in that bad a shape yet, uh, but you're just kind of sliding down into that, there are a lot of things you could do to keep from getting in that bad a shape. And by the way, if you don't do them, you, you may just keep sliding down that uh, slope into depression, despair, sadness, hopelessness. You can get well, you can get out of it, there is hope. Uh, but the sooner you do something about it, the easier it is to fix. I mentioned social media. I'm just wondering, as an observer and someone working on this technology, what are other things that you might be looking for in terms of somebody's behaviors? Um, what comes to mind? Some of the behaviors that make 
a big difference. Uh, and again, this isn't for everybody. You know, there could be individual variation, but in studies, there are significant effects of these behaviors are things like regular sleep. Uh, and here, not just sleep duration. We took groups of college students who slept the same duration. And those who had a more regular bedtime, who whose sleep period timing was most correlated from day to day, they had significantly better mental health than those who went to bed, you know, at 2 a.m. one night and midnight the next night and 4 a.m. the next night and kind of all over the place. So even if your total sleep duration is the same, uh, you can possibly improve your mental health and lower your stress by going to bed at a more regular uh, time. Also, social interaction, uh, good social relationships is huge for most people, um, and especially for young people. They really need each other. You need other people in your life. Uh, I joke among our hardworking MIT and Harvard students, you know, make sure the number of your friends exceeds your GPA. Uh, but it's not a joke. You really need to make sure that you cultivate good friendships in your life at all ages. That is perhaps the single most important factor one could uh, do as a behavior for improving their mental health. Mm. You've also, I think, looked at this interesting idea of forecasting stress or trying to almost get ahead of it. Can you talk about that? How, how would that work? Yes, we started early on in, first of all, just seeing if our phones and wearables could detect stress. And here, there's a bit of a challenge because the word stress is like an umbrella word. Yeah. It has lots of different things under it, and they have different physiological manifestations. Some of them are just like cognitive thoughts. Some of them are things like your heart pounding and your palms sweating. Uh, so there are lots of different kinds of stress. In fact, just uh, when a person is talking on the phone in a no with a noisy background, their voice will sound more stressed, even though all they're trying to do is raise their voice above the noise. So stress is a very complicated uh, concept. Uh, now, within that complexity, without getting too detailed here, we can uh, look at subsets of it and not only recognize what level of stress you might have right now, but how kind of stressful your day was and how stressful your day is likely to be tomorrow based on not only your physiology now, but your activities today and over the last several days. For example, if your sleep has been highly irregular and your social interaction has been down and your uh, skin conductance, one physiological measure we look at, you know, is really spiking a lot during the afternoon when you're usually uh, studying, then we're, we can predict, uh, plus some other sort of fancy AI wrapped around it and some other factors, uh, we might predict that you're going to have a higher probability of stress tomorrow. And we're significantly better than a personalized random predictor at, uh, at predicting that with these measures. So we are now able to then take that and help you prepare for tomorrow, which, which is tricky, right? Because if you open your phone and you get a, you know, a weather forecast, you might know, okay, I can, I can deal with this by taking an umbrella or taking a coat or wearing something cooler or whatever the forecast is. But if I'm forecasting that tomorrow your stress is likely to be worse, I don't know about you, but some people are not going to want to hear that forecast. <laughs> and um, however, if the forecast could say, hey, uh, based on your data, there's evidence that if you do something fun tonight, like spend some extra time socially with one of these friends that usually makes you feel less stressed the next day, or go to bed a little earlier, or convert this meeting this afternoon to a walking meeting, these things are usually associated with lowering your stress mm -hmm. for tomorrow. Then, just like some people might take an umbrella, and some won't, some people might want this advice, and they might change what they do, and they might feel better the next day. Yeah. Interesting. I'm going to try and throw now another large kind of wide angle question at you here, because some of the most interesting conversations I think on this program have had to do with this thing of trying to polish all the rough edges of life or to get away with all forms of anxiety or depression or sadness or grief. And we kind of just live more in a neutral, lukewarm emotional state. And, and I'm also recognizing that there are people that really need help and shouldn't live in desperate situations. But I, I wonder for you, I mean, the technology you're talking about 
to me also seems a little bit maybe a part of this and that we're trying to make life, you know, a little easier on ourselves always. And I, for someone like you who's designing this, I, I have to think you're thinking about some of these bigger questions that have to do, I think, with very basic and big questions of being a human. Yeah, yeah wow. <laughs> that is a big question. Um, f- first of all, th- you know, there there is a popular conception that you know we should just feel good all the time right like in brave new world if you're not happy take your soma Mm. and be happy like what's wrong with you if you're not going to choose to be happy all the time and maybe some people are seeing the kind of technology we're creating as something that could just make them happier all the time well that would make me unhappy (laughs) Uh, while i do like increasing happiness there's a really important role for every emotion. Uh, it's important sometimes to be sad. It's valuable. If, you're, if you've lost somebody or something special or your friend has, there's a time, a season to enter into sadness. And that can you know, deepen a relationship. That can deepen what it means to be human. Uh, I don't want to see the lows removed um, and the highs removed and us, you know, just live in some kind of artificial middle drugged to not feel the extremes of life. I think, you know, we have all of these feelings for reasons. And it's interesting. We now know, too, that a lot of these different kinds of feelings lead us to think in different ways. It's almost as if our our brain, uh, which is not a computer, but if we were designing a computer that needed to have more than one strategy to solve a problem... And sometimes we switch to strategy A, and sometimes we switch to strategy B. Well, guess what? Being sad is a different strategy of thinking. And being happy is a different strategy of thinking. And being frustrated leads you to try new solutions. And uh, sadness can lead you to go deeper um, into a particular narrow area. Happiness can lead you to be more broadening and building, and it's much better for creative, out-of-the-box thinking. So these different affective states have really important values. What what stinks is when you're just stuck in the negative ones right. <laughs> chronically, right? That's not healthy. There, there's a certain amount of time that might be good to be sad uh, or good to be angry, um, but to be there for a really long period of time uh, is not healthy. So we, uh, I guess, need to help people build awareness and give people better tools to self-regulate uh, and to Uh, change when they're stuck somewhere that's not a good place. It's been such a pleasure to be joined by Rosalind Picard, founder and director of the Effective Computing Research Group at the MIT Media Lab. Um, Thank you so much for this really fascinating conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you for this opportunity. All right, that's it for this week. The producer of our show is Andrea Brody, and we'd love to hear from you. How has your cultural background or heritage shaped your emotions? And how do you feel about computers being able to figure out what you're feeling? Chime in on our Facebook page. You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.